Shri Guru Parampara ki jai, Shri Sivarakanalal ki jai, Gaur Bhaktabindu ki jai, Gaur Premanande. So good afternoon everyone. So we gathered on the occasion of the Sunday feasts, it was here, and um, so we may have some uh, guests that are less familiar with our tradition and teachings, so I'll try to speak in a more broad way about the teachings, and uh, hopefully say something for everyone will find some use for some part of some words. Um, we, of course, have a main book, just like here in the south. The uh, Baptists have the book of the Bible, Christians, different denominations and so forth. So um, the uh, Hindu world has their book and books, really, they, uh, their body of, the, let's call it the Eastern body of revelation, if you will. Hmm? It's um, quite old in its uh, physical appearance, predating the, the, uh, the, obviously, the new Western Testament. And... Um, perhaps the Old Testament as well, um, but quite a voluminous body of uh, literature that constitutes the Eastern revelation of the Hindus. Many books. And um, among them, our particular tradition within the broader world of Hinduism, which you know probably most of you by nature tends to be rather pluralistic, rather inclusive. Hinduism is is of that uh, nature, kind of easygoing actually, and live and let live. And oh, you believe like that? That's cool. Um, it's a little bit like that. Um, in its the real feeling, obviously, people attach themselves to it in different ways and become as fanatical in Hinduism as we find fanaticism in any other branch of uh, religion. Um, but within within the Hinduism, uh, if we use an overarching term, we find uh, our, our tradition, a, a devotional tradition, and... Um, And it has a main book. It has several books, but uh, the the Eastern Testament, if you will, as I was explaining or mentioning earlier, is thought to be the most voluminous body of literature, I think, period, on any subject. So it's quite uh, quite a lot of uh, insight there. Not... Uh, the easiest to sort out what it all means and how it all works together and so forth. 
And along with the, the wisdom of the book, we have the, a succession of teachers that uh, hand the book down and explain it and so forth. And, and in, in our tradition of teachers, um, the wider body of this uh, Eastern Revelation is kind of distilled down into an Eastern, if you will, uh, New Testament. Hmm? In one book called the Bhagwat, Srimad Bhagwatam, the Bhagwat Purana. Hmm? There are some parallels between this idea of an Eastern, a Western New Testament, which is with the Christ uh, and the, the letters and so forth. I think it makes it up of the apostles, the witnesses and so forth, the New Testament, where law was um, superseded by love. Hmm? Largely, I mean that's obviously a generalization, but I think it's uh, it applies. The laws were replaced with love, and I think it comes down to two laws, if there's any. That really the uh, the Christian tradition settles on: love thy God with all thy heart and soul, and love thy neighbor as thyself. These are the two, hmm? as I understand it. So. Um, so from law to love, and there's a similar uh, transition from the great body of sacred text that's thought to have been composed, compiled under um, the legendary Vyas. It's a term that means uh, compiler, hmm? um, but uh, legendary Vyas with his staff compiled this voluminous body of literature. Uh, this is the traditional perspective. Um, the more academic perspective is different, but it's different on the Bible too. Um, so, <laughs> uh, amongst all of that revelation, the, the Vyas, the legendary compiler, himself has what uh, he describes as his final work. Hmm. This is, uh, uh, and this is the book then that our tradition settles on, and envisions as the hub around which all this sacred text or all these sacred sounds, as they're sometimes thought of, orbit around and are understood in context, hmm. in relation to the to the to the New Testament of the Bhagavatam, which is a doctrine of love that really overrides or supersedes, retires much of the law of the... It's a, we use the word dharma. It can be translated as religion, duty. There are different ways to translate it. But um, uh, the general idea in the Revelation is that there's a, a, a human obligation to acknowledge um, uh, a source beyond ourself to whom we show gratitude for the bounty of life and um, and uh, with whom we can in the afterlife um, 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 make a better life <laughs> for ourselves. Uh, um, but this general idea of dharma, hmm, 
which then outlines a whole lot of moral laws and, and whatnot, a whole lot of them. Hmm? This is uh, superseded by the Bhagavad, which is said to be the final work of Vyasa and his maturity and so forth. And it, it, be, it very much begins with this point that this work is meant to supersede all the other works in in a sense that it replaces the law with 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 a doctrine of of love hmm? so there's some parallels a parallel and um and the book the bhagavatam itself is is not a short text it's uh about somewhere near around 18,000 uh, verses most of it is in poetry in verse and some of it is also in, in prose. Um, and it's quite an art, from a literary point of view, to um, ma- make such a philosophical uh, presentation, dissertation in poetry. Uh, and so it is of great uh, literary acclaim, the Bhagavatam. Of all the sacred texts of the Hindus, which, as I said, there's a lot of them, there is no uh, book amongst them that has the kind of literary character of the Bhagavatam. It's uh, very extraordinary, and um, it it uh, its story, if you will, which we'll get to uh, in brief. Its story is one that has been uh, celebrated. It's been celebrated for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries, thousands of years, um, celebrated in not only its own form of literature by way of translations hmm, into every Indian dialect, and there's a lot of them, hmm, uh, every Indian dialect and beyond. It's the first, um, I think, of any of the... uh, Puranic text to ever be translated in a foreign language. It appeared in French, I think, in the 19th, 19th century, mid-19th century. Um, um, and from there, it's, it's, it's gone to other languages. Um, of course, um, we're very proud to be members of the lineage that put it in, in English and circulated it so widely. And from there into French <laughs> and the Russian and the German and Spanish and uh, Hungarian and lots and lots of other languages also. So we're, we're, we're proud to be members of the, that uh, group and have a small role in that, uh, which really constitutes something that's been going on for thousands of years, the celebration of this book in literary form and... Beyond that, I want to say, um, well, continuing with that, it also, uh, there have been more than 80 Sanskrit commentaries written on the text, um, exploring the depths of it and the implications of it and and so on and so forth. So it has a rich, rich uh, uh, history, uh, tradition of of, of commentary. Hmm? Educated people being involved and and uh, and uh, uh, exhibiting a fascination with the text, but beyond the literary, if you will, 
celebration of the text. It's been celebrated in art, which it so much lends itself to. It, it's central piece. Um, it's it constitutes, uh, like I said, about eighteen thousand verses. It's twelve books, twelve cantos, and um, the centerpiece is the tenth canto. And this has been celebrated in art, which it so much lends itself to in music, in dance, in um, drama, hmm? in every Indian dialect and uh, some Western dialects now, and many, and and in new art forms as well um, today. So it's a very um, extraordinary uh, work. And... um, and and objectively speaking, as I say, our tradition embraces it as the main book, the book around which the rest of this revelation should orbit and be understood in context and so forth. But our position on that, while a sectarian one and a, and a, and a subjective one, has much objectivity to it as well, as I'm pointing out in brief. It's the most celebrated of the of the text, uh, along with it, I could say I should say the Bhagavad Gita, hmm, which is part of the Mahabharata. But these two are go together, properly understood, almost like the the like this, uh, one being the sequel of the other, part two. Hmm? The Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, is, is like an introduction hmm, to the idea of Krishna which we have to get to, the center person in the book. And, uh, and Bhagavatam takes us into the, into the life, hmm? the world of, of the Godhead, so to speak. So they, uh, they fit together very well and, uh, and are equally celebrated in one sense, in literary form, but the Bhagavatam, much more than the Gita, lends itself to the celebration, in, as I say, in art and music, dance, drama, and so forth. Uh, so it's very much kind of uh, the Gita brought to life, the teaching in the Gita brought, brought to life and demonstrated in a narrative form, a day in the life, or the life, I should say, of, of the Godhead. The biography, it's the biography of God is basically the idea. It's very extraordinary. So it's, uh, it's different in that sense, also from the Western Revelation, let's say, of the of the Bible or the or the Quran or um, Torah. There you go. Um, which haven't lent themselves to the same extent, I think, to such forms of celebration. Perhaps uh, some extent, no doubt, but um, and appropriately so. But um, it's uh, it's different from from them. In, con- in, in content, and then it's like I say, it's 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 a, it's a biography of the Godhead, which is a pretty extraordinary idea. It's also a very um, philosophical book, like I said. Although it's written in poetry, it's deeply profound and philosophical. That's quite a accomplishment. If you know, if you when I write philosophy, to put it in poetry, it's uh, you know that's another step. So um, very artful, but. But given that it is about this, its philosophical content, it has a very found, strong, I should say, uh, f- philosophical foundation and a 
on on top of that is a is a very charming theology hmm? um, and the nature of the philosophy of the book is that it speaks to us very uh, plainly, if you will, um, um, very directly about the nature of being in a way that hearing it and how it's speaking about the nature of being, you can readily observe what it's talking about. Hmm? And which is eye-opening because you were observing all along, but you weren't seeing it from that light. And that is the way things are working and the way nature works and, and, and so forth. It's not a detailed analysis of how nature works in terms of how science looks at the, at the natural world as if that's all there is and so forth. It doesn't begin with that idea or certainly end or conclude with that idea that nature is all there is, matter is all there is. It's all really about consciousness and its prospect. Now consciousness gives meaning to matter, and so it does talk about matter in the natural world um, to uh, to some extent, and to what extent? In such a way, hmm, as I say, philosophically speaking, that it seems to say to us the things that were just like the nose on your face. It was there, but you didn't you didn't ever notice it, even though without using it, <laughs> you wouldn't. wouldn't exist. So uh, that's a very startling kind of experience. I've been looking at this all this, you know, it's like you look at a picture all the time and, and then you, know, you look at it again, you see something there you didn't see before with a little bit of help from outside. Something like this, the picture of life, the, the, what the senses perceive and and and, and um, the nature of sensual perception, the nature of uh, of, of mind in, in certain respects, and so forth. Anyway, very uh, philosophical and very um, kind of eye-opening to things that are right in front of you that you can almost like that's verifiable what that's being what's that's saying there. Hmm? Um, so it's very startling in, in in a sense. And this is also a big difference between the Western and Eastern revelation. It's not a book that asks us to believe hmm, based on, for example, a testament of another that someone was extraordinary hmm, and um, and worthy of our attention, hmm, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, if you meet an extraordinary person and you want to testify about their character and so forth, to others, that can be very compelling and uh, cause you to develop interest in that person as well, which would be, if he's the right person or she is, in your interest. Um, but the Bhagavatam goes about in a different way, and uh, rather than speaking about believing, testaments of belief, hmm? Hmm. based on witnessing, hmm? um, it speaks philosophically, again, about the, rather than belief, about the nature of being, and based on the nature of being that it describes, that if, if you come to resonate with it, which is not difficult to do, as I'm explaining, then the theological aspect of it is becomes very um, believable. Hmm? Hmm? You have the philosophical foundation, and it's caused you to look at life differently than you had been, um, and... Then, so the, the theological side 
fits with that, makes sense. Hmm? Obviously, I'm not explaining all what that all it is, but just giving an overview of the text. And so then, moving on with it, it begins, um, well, it is centrally, at the same time, a narrative. Narratives within narratives, questions um, that give rise to answers in the context of which, when answering, stories are told hmm? and lessons to be learned that help to answer the question. So it starts with questions, then there are answers. The answers often take off in the way of a narrative as if you know, you know, tell a story in order to make the point and illustrate it and so forth. And when the point is finally answered and so forth, it closes up and then another question comes and, and other answers and, and, and so forth. So it's full of uh, insightful stories, histories, if you like, uh, um, um, of events. And, and, um, and um, the main, at the same time, the main event, the main narrative that the book is centered around is the questioning of the Raj, the emperor of India. Hmm? He was named in the book Parikshit, which means inquirer. So he was an inquisitive type. And uh, as it turns out, the emperor, by circumstances described in the narrative of the Bhagavatam, was cursed to die hmm? by... Uh, to be bit by a snake, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it was cursed to die in seven days. Hmm. So, sounds exciting. <laughs> you know, <laughs> make a movie out of that. And, uh, <laughs> and so, this is a huge event. Here the emperor of India is cursed to die in seven days. And so he has to deal with that and the way he deals with it is very noteworthy. He goes to the bank of the sacred river, the Ganges, and he wants to know what what is death, really? I don't want to die. What is death? Why do I have to die? What? It's a, it's, it's really an inquiry into the nature of death, which, properly understood, reveals the nature of life. These things go together. Hmm? Understanding death properly is uh, to understand how to live hmm? in a way that we're all seeking to live, in an enduring way and a happy way and so forth. So it's an interesting explanation, you can, as you can uh, imagine. Hmm? Um, and to answer his questions... Uh, then people started arriving from all over, learned people in different schools and so forth, to offer different questions about what is death or what to do at the time of death, what's important in life is the implication. I'm dying now. What's really important? I've been preoccupied with a lot of things. I'm a king, so I've got like everything a man could want, hmm? and I'm going to die. Hmm? And so, what are all the things I wanted and that I got, and how valuable are they to me? And what in all of this, 
and he's a king, so he's like, you know, a man who has everything, kind of, is the implication. And now he's going to die. He's got seven days, so what's important, really? Out of all the things I've got, you know, what's important, or how to think about it? This is his, his, his inquiry. So this really goes to the heart of what, you know, what life's about. We all have seven days to live. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. One of those days, you're going to die. So we should pay attention to our weeks, our week, hmm? um, as he did. Hmm? This is the message, really. Um, one of the messages. And so he was concerned how to spend his time, his human time. Hmm? And uh, and he knew there's a clock on that. So, so people started arriving from all over the place to give answers. Everybody's got an opinion, you know. Every every learned person, every talking head's got an opinion about what what to do. So, uh, um, uh, from the the multitude of potential teachers and whatnot comes the boy Sukadev. 16-year-old boy, and he was naked, hmm? naked. And when he arrived on the scene, hmm, there was an, in, kind of an intuitive sense in everyone present who had come to offer their, their opinions, this boy knows the answer. Because although he was 16 years old and he was naked, he was not like the average 16-year-old boy. Who gets naked? I mean, sometimes. <laughs> uh, he, he, he was oblivious to the fact that he was naked, which could be embarrassing too, but, but in a very extraordinary way. He was very inwardly absorbed. Hmm? And uh, the... The, the, he had turned his entire attention, focus, consciousness, mind, uh, mind, I want to say, uh, within to explore the treasure that lies within, that is our, the very f- thing within us that gives meaning to things. Hmm? Consciousness. As I often say, consciousness is, is, is value, uh, uh, it's it's a it's a a unit of value, hmm? meaning, meaning, value, quality, purpose, and so forth. So when we invest our consciousness in matter, we give inanimate things a life, hmm? right? They take on a meaning, and so forth. So the basis of all meaning sense of purpose, value, it all lies within rather than in things hmm? that are here today and gone tomorrow and we are observing that coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. The Hindus have a cyclical idea of time, but it's not based on the Greek uh, notions of cyclical time that were simplistic in the sense that they were based on, will the seasons change? Mm, round and round. Painted ponies go up and down. <laughs> I know all. Uh, so, 
excuse me. <laughs> round and round. Uh, their idea <laughs> of cyclical time was based on their sense that everything was moving around something that wasn't a thing and didn't move. Hmm? Consciousness. Hmm? And it was the observer. It was not part of the changing world because if it was, it couldn't observe the changes. Hmm? Like, I can stand here and watch an airplane go across the sky and think, wow, it's going pretty fast. You can sit on the airplane and think, you're just sitting still. Hmm? It's changing, but you're part of it, so to speak, and so you can't perceive it, is the point. So they they realize that I'm separate from all this because I can see it all changing, and I'm watching the changes. And I'm not changing with it, in the midst of it. Hmm? I mean, we change as people, our minds change and so forth, but there's something in us that's unchanging, that we have an observing capacity. Hmm? Witness. Hmm? Witness to the world. And so they concluded on this kind of basis where they they come to their cyclical time, something like this, uh, that there's a center, the world is moving around, it's a consciousness center. Uh, It's a big, an interesting part of the text, cyclical time as opposed to linear time that you have with Christianity, for example. Um, But at any rate, the boy, Sugadev, was absorbed not in the changes, the comings and goings and the appearances of reality that suddenly transform. Hmm? The prince transforms into a monster suddenly. It happens in dreams and it happens in waking life as well. It takes a little longer for that to play out, but it happens. And then there's divorce and <laughs> and worse things and so forth. So this uh he he they realized he's not part of he's not identified like we are to one extent or another they thought with the transformations hmm? he has nothing and he doesn't want anything it's one thing to not have anything and want everything the king had everything hmm? had nothing to want but had nothing of meaning in relation to the nature of the world in that, well, time and tide waits for no man or woman, as they say. And his time had come. We all have a cell, in a sense, this body, and a sentence. And the, and the um, it's a life sentence that, <laughs> that ends, in, ends in the death chamber. <laughs> That's for everybody. <laughs> so they, anyway, they, they, they realize this boy is very uh, different. Hmm? And uh, 16-year-old boys, I mean, we know what they're like. So he was very different, sagely and internally absorbed. Hmm? He had nothing. He did not even have clothes on his back. And they thought, he knows. He knows how to solve the death problem. Hmm? He knows how to solve the death problem because why? Because he he is 
his life is not based, and his sense of being is not based on having. As much as our sense of being is derived from our sense of what we have, we really don't exist in any meaningful or enduring way because we don't really have anything that we can keep. Right? We are renters. Hmm? We don't own anything here. Hmm? So if our, if what, what I think is me, my being, my existence, hmm, is derived from what I have, what's mine, what I think is mine, hmm? this is not to be at all, really. Hmm? Only an appearance of being, as much as the having is an appearance. So he had nothing, but he was being or existing in a very, very profound way. If you don't have anything, well, then your kind of situation is pathetic, and you're an object of, of empathy, compassion. Hmm? But he didn't have anything. But beyond that, he didn't want anything. Hmm? I mean, anything. Therefore, the nakedness is, 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 is the point. So they were struck by this. Hmm? And they thought, he knows because the problem of death is really that you, in one sense, that you, well, what's the problem? That things that you're attached to and conceptions about yourself, your being, based on your attachments, what you have or think you have, you is being taken away from you. You can't keep it. So it's a problem. Hmm? But if you don't have any attachments hmm, and your sense of being is not derived from what you have, you don't have any problems. And the biggest problem of all, for those whose being is derived from having, is dying. Hmm, he solved the death problem, hmm, they thought. He solved the death problem. So the king... They deferred to the boy who took the seat, the asana, and began to speak the great Srimad Bhagavatam. Hmm? And so he teaches there, of course, how to be hmm, in a meaningful and real sense hmm, without having. Hmm? And this is what the sages could kind of, or other persons assembled to kind of intuit, as I say, and defer to him. Hmm? But the striking feature of the Bhagavatam, if this isn't striking enough, and it's not, um, really, but it's quite a uh, profound idea, that that he began to teach the, how to be without having, hmm? but beyond that, hmm? not only how to be, but how to love. Hmm? So they could intuit that he 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 exists. He, he has some kind of existence there, that's not derived from having, and there's nothing to take away from him. So the change that is death, hmm, or the demise of the biological organism, which is just a change, right? It it all changes into something else, right? Hmm, and so forth. That let's see, he's not identified with that changing. Hmm? He will. He knows he's in, he's a unit of enduring existence because his existence is not based on a false sense of having. Hmm? 
that's going to be taken away from him and show the falsity of it. So they knew that he had an enduring sense of being, but they didn't know that he had it, and that he that that in the context of being, he had a purpose in his being, for, which was for loving. Hmm? And that's extraordinary because not only is our being in this world a uh, sense of being derived from our sense of having, hmm? but our sense of loving is a kind of having also. Hmm? And so <laughs> uh, to, to, to be hmm? in a real sense and then to love in a real sense. Hmm? To be means not, in a real sense, not have my being or my existence based on having, based on attachments. So what I'm saying is that if you give up all attachments, then... I guess you aren't going to be loving either. You could be, but who are you going to love? You're not attached to anybody. You say, is he attached? <laughs> yeah, everybody is. Don't worry about it. But no, they mean, you know, has he got a partner? Has she got a partner? Is she attached? Or is she, you know, available? Is she in the market? You know, <laughs> what? You know, she, they think like this. He's, he, yeah. So, <laughs> so the idea is, well, okay, fine. I get your point that by thinking that my existence is based on my having, I've got a very fragile sense of existence. So if I can learn that I exist without having, and there's a method for coming to that insight and experience, that would be very profound. But love is about having, isn't it? Having a partner hmm? and being attached to someone and so on and so forth. And so, suddenly now, we think, that sounded really good, but eh, who wants it? Who cares if you can be forever, if you can't love? <laughs> and so, But our sense of loving, of course, really, in this world, is very much joined with part of, really, our sense of having. Because we don't as long as we don't really be, hmm, we don't really love. Hmm? If our being is based on attachment, then we think, I need a partner for me to be whole. Let me find one, and I'm using others for, for my being so that I may be more hmm, substantially and, 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 and so forth. So in, in, in it has kind of a semblance of loving because we we sit down with our partner and we or you know we, we don't sit down necessarily maybe we do but we kind of agree on things we find hey you like that too I like that also I think having that is good you think having that is good hmm? let's have it together <laughs> and and so we'll have a life hmm? we'll have together and then I'll we'll feel that our being is perhaps more enduring because we're enduring it together. <laughs> the having and, and the, the trouble of trying to have, hmm? which is difficult because everything is disappearing as we, as we try to get it, it's just it's going out the other end. So, <laughs> so, but still, still, in attachments to another, another and going through the world with another, if you will, um, there, there, is, there is some giving that has to take place that to work because 
we get together and we go, you like that? Like, like I said, I like that too. Cool. You think like that? I think like that too. You like that place? I like that place too. We should team up. We should be one. We are one. Hmm? Then we find out, oh, but you like that and I don't like that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> now we've got to negotiate about that. We, uh, how are we going to work that out? Um, and so <laughs> the two aren't entirely one. <laughs> Not entirely one. So then we work out kind of a deal. Well, it's enough on the list here <laughs> that, you know, we can stick it out and stick together and we just kind of ignore those other parts or when they come up, you know, we'll deal with it then, something like that. And so you make a compromise and and we call it we call it love. Hmm? And and but the compromise is not a bad thing. Compromise is really the best part of the whole thing. Hmm? The compromise, if you will, is is just an inkling of real love because then you make a sacrifice. Hey, I really like this. I'm sure you will too. Uh, as it turns out, I don't. <laughs> oh, so who's going to give in? Hmm? I would like to go here. Well, I'd like to go there. So suddenly your differences provide an opportunity for growth hmm? and for some semblance of loving because instead of taking and saying, well, you know, we're going to go to my place, you have the opportunity to say, okay, we'll do it your way. Hmm? And I'll, I'll make a sacrifice. Hmm? So while the relationship was based on, hey, you like what I like, let's get together and we'll be stronger in our, in our likenesses, hmm? in our having, if the two of us are having it, it'll be harder for somebody to take it away from us. Hmm? In fact, let's have some kids. <laughs> and, and build a whole army here and protect our <laughs> what we have. <laughs> this is... <laughs> It's an interesting book, huh? It's funny, it would make a good show. So, <laughs> so, but in all that, as I say, there's these points where we have the opportunity to sacrifice. And that's the hard part, the part we don't like, but that's some semblance of what real loving is about, which is about not taking and not having, but giving. Hmm? And we have some sense, some experience, that when we do that, when we give rather than take, we kind of feel better. Hmm? I did it for you. We went to your place, you know, and and just for you. And I'm feeling good about that. Hmm? I'm feeling like a bigger person, a, a nicer person. Uh, in, a, in a qualitative way, I'm a bigger person. Hmm? I've grown. Hmm? I've expanded rather than contracted and... You know, I want everything to be mine, and then I become very small. Hmm? The more I want everything to be mine in my way, I become very small and very alone, very narrow, hmm? small-minded, mean-spirited, and so forth. Hmm? The more I give, the more I expand rather than contract, and people like me more, and my sense of who I am is extends beyond some provincial sense. I'm you know, part of the nation now. I'm going to sacrifice my personal family needs for the nation, go on a campaign or something and for betterment or whatever. So that I'm giving, sacrificing, and I'm growing. Hmm? So 
This is the secret, of course. Life grows by sacrifice, by giving, not by taking. And it doesn't look like that on the surface. Hmm? Right? You think, if I give, I'll have less. That's the, kind of the math, the arithmetic of the thing. If I give, I'll have less. But we give and we, we, we feel that we are more. Hmm? So these differences that we have then in, in trying to be by having and having a partner and so forth, they give us some semblance, experience of what... What, what, what love is like. And so we're not ready, we should not be ready, to give up on love. Hmm? Even if in replacement for the hope of love hmm, that I've never found entirely. Hmm? Um, it, I, I will not trade the hope of love hmm, for being eternal. Wow. Hmm? I'll risk dying hmm, for loving and I, and, and I won't trade that for being eternal. Hmm? This is very interesting because being eternal, that seems to solve a lot of problems. I mean, in a spiritual consciousness sense, existence, uh, I, I don't, nothing... There's no death. There's no hmm. I'm kind of, kind of full in myself. I don't have any wants, any needs. Hmm. Um, but if I don't have any love, our tradition says I'm not going there. Hmm. Salvation has no meaning to me if it is just eternal being. If it, if the loving is only the loving to exist, loving to be. Hmm. I'm eternal. I am. I am. Now I think I'm American or I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican or a Baptist or a Hindu or a man or a woman. All these thinkings of what I am obscure the fact that I am. I am not this or that, but I am. You follow me? I'm not American or Indian or black. Those things are just... Well, they change, don't they? You could be a daughter, you turn into a mother. Hmm? <laughs> and a grandmother, and you could be a Republican, turn into a, a Democrat. Hmm? Probably doesn't happen too often, but... <laughs> but, <laughs> but this changing sense of identity, I am this, I am that, neti, 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 neti. The sacred text says, you're not this, you're not that, but you are. So I am is huge. I am American or Democrat. This is a very small idea, but I am, that I exist. Hmm? I'm a unit of experiential existence, enduring existence. And I could realize that and experience that. We're theorizing about something, but you could experience it and have no wants. Hmm? They could see this in the boy. He had no wants. They knew he had some can't even call it a thing. He had. He had. He is. Hmm? Nothing can do away with his being. Hmm? You can't take anything from him. He doesn't want anything. Hmm? He doesn't acknowledge that he has anything. He is. A unit of experiential existence, a unit of consciousness. Hmm? Such a big idea. So solving the death problem and the teaching in the book, the Bhagavad is, we will not trade 
Hmm? The hope for love hmm? in exchange for eternal being. Hmm? Hmm? Without loving, which constitutes some type of attachment, doesn't it? Attachment to another in some way. Hmm? Connecting with another. So while the sages could understand he is I'll solve the death problem, what he surprised everybody with was not only am I being, but which I'm teaching also about loving in transcendence. That means that this the hope for love that we pursue in the material world, which we'll we'll never realize. Hmm? There's a reason that we pursue it. There's a reason that we pursue it, and it has to do with what we're made out of as, as, as a unit of consciousness, a soul, what we're made out of. What we're made out of is something that's enduring, being, as I'm saying, consciousness. It's sat. It doesn't transform like the world. It doesn't undergo birth, growth, deterioration, demise, and so forth. It's sat. It's also chit. So... It's cognitive. You could have an existence that didn't know it existed, but if you have a knowing, it has to exist also. So it's sat and it's chit. It it exists and it knows I am. Knowing that has no fear. It has no fear, no anxiety. I am. Hmm. But it also is sat, chit, and it is a unit of also anandam. Hmm? Anandam means, well, sat means, to put it another way, being. Chit means knowing. I'm a unit of being. I'm a unit of knowing and a unit of loving. Hmm? This is how the text really kind of defines consciousness. Hmm? It's not a thing, you see. It's being undeniable being, hmm? um, knowing comprehensively, a kind of knowing <coughs> that humbles one. This is real knowing. Hmm? And a unit of loving. And that is what we do. All of us, we try to be, we try to know, we try to love. Hmm? Therefore, we reason that I'm trying to be in relation to things and having them, that's not working. Hmm? So I'll be in relation to myself, that I'm a unit of experiential uh, existence. So and I, I, I know that things are temporary and here, then, gone tomorrow, so attaching myself to them is not to be. So I'll be and I will know, but we are also constantly pursuing love. We're always trying to be, we're trying to know, and we're trying to love. That's what we do. Hmm? And so just to be without loving, well, that's, there's something in us that may resist that. And it's, it's, it's inherent in us. Hmm? We have the capacity for loving. We could settle for loving ourselves and just atmaram, the pleasure of being, hmm? the love, love being, I love being. Ah, oh, it's peaceful rather than thinking I might, you know, not be at some point. <laughs> but, as I often say, 
it's better to love, exist to love rather than to love to exist. So how do we exist to love? Well, for that, there has to be a significant other, hmm? but not of the world of comings and goings, hmm? the appearances hmm? uh, that, that I attach myself to, try to find love and relationship to, but, but uh, don't endure. Hmm? So, therefore, not only are we a unit of consciousness, but like a spark of the fire of consciousness, but there's a fire also. Hmm? This is then the Godhead. So there's, Sugadev spoke to them about solving the death problem, how to be, hmm? without cause for concern of not being, hmm? and beyond that, how to love, how to fulfill the pursuit of love and transcendence by centering our loving capacity on the source of love who's depicted in the text as um, Krishna. And the methodology, then, for arriving at that kind of love hmm, and um, a substantial sense of being, as I'm explaining, is explained in the book, hmm, um, along with um, some practical advice on how to um, uh, avoid influences that will get in the way of that method. The method is simple. What is the exercise, the yogic exercise, if you will, that is recommended in the text by which we overcome the having tendency and see clearly what I am and then in that context, love. The method is simple. It's, I said we are the spark of the fire, it's so it's to sing about the fire. Hmm? Hmm? Sing about the fire. And the, and the, the text excels in its descriptions of the qualities, nature, and movement hmm, of the absolute. This is the way it differs from some of the other texts of Revelation also that don't tell us much about. And in, in order to love, you've you got to have some information. Well, what's he like? You know, what are your likes? Again, we're back to that. So what, 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 what is the Godhead like? It's kind of, what is the nature hmm, of the Godhead? So it is full of such beautiful uh, descriptions. Hmm? And a kind of movement that we call uh, Leela. Krishna is the, you know, the God that, what is he, Nietzsche, what did he say? That if there was a God, he'd be a dancer. So he's the dancer. Hmm? And the movement, music, of the dancing, is the love of the devotee that we call bhakti. Hmm? That, um, that uh, uh, kind of, let's say, orchestrates or a- a- animates the absolute. Uh, and, and, and so the, the principal kind of form, of shape of that bhakti is the chanting. And we chant the name of Krishna. Hmm? And this separates us in time gradually from the sense of being derived from having. We have some philosophy that goes in there that helps us to 
think about it properly, and then the heart, if you will, kind of becomes cleansed of of attachments because it starts to become filled up hmm, with a sense of being and the prospect of loving. Hmm. And so as the heart becomes cleansed, then the picture on the heart changes and the picture of Krishna takes over the heart, so to speak, and, and one enters through the chanting itself alone a loving relationship with Krishna. This is the central, uh, you say, um, form, shape, of which the practice takes, the method to our um, madness. And, and I want to just close with this. Um, it sounds easy, and it is, and it's inviting, and the book is available for reading. It's a, it's a very um, entertaining and um, informative, <laughs> enlightening, uh, and and it it I said that there there are some things recommended in the book for to be avoided that are uh, stressed, and um, it uh, in in introducing the character of the Raj, the king, Parikshit, it has to tell a little bit of his story before he was cursed and so forth, and. Uh, so it turns out, as the emperor of India, he was out and about in his kingdom, and uh, well, he ran into a, a bull on one leg, talking to a cow. Hmm. That's pretty interesting in itself. And the cow—it's a metaphor, allegorical story—that uh, where the, the earth took the shape of a cow and was thin and emaciated and urinating and distressed. And a bull on one leg appeared, and they have this very interesting conversation. Hmm? And um, the bull represents dharma, hmm? the right thing to do, something like that. Hmm? And uh, and the cow represents the earth, who feels distressed because people are not um, because she doesn't have a calf. Hmm? The, 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 the son, if you will, or the daughter of the earth is thought to be the grains, the main food stuff hmm? for human society. And even if you're a carnivore, the main food is grains because, you know, it takes, they use the grains to, to fatten the animals so you can um, consume them. Hmm? So um, the earth was uh, troubled, it was appearing as a cow, allegorically, without a calf, and crying, urinating, and very emaciated, that the earth was um, overburdened by a quality of time that was inauspicious. Hmm? We often think of time in a quantitative sense, but the Bhagavatam speaks more of time in a qualitative sense. There's qualities to time. Hmm? And uh, the time was such that it was... It was... was, uh, well, inauspicious for dharma. Hmm? Hmm. It wasn't very conducive. And so the bull and the cow are talking. The bull's on one leg. Three legs are broken. Hmm? The four legs represent religiousness and austerity, mercifulness, cleanliness, hmm? truthfulness, truthfulness. Got five in there, four of them. Uh, and then, uh, and he's standing on one, and then along comes the king, 
and sees this, what's going on here? Hmm? So he begins to talk to the bull that represents the Dharma. Hmm? And uh, he wants to know what happened, how did this, what, what's going on, and so forth. And so they, they, uh, um, well, what, I'm sorry, what happens is he comes upon them and he finds a, a, a person impersonating a king, and he's the king. So he finds an impersonator of the king, of himself, and much unlike himself, good king that he was, this fellow is beating the cow, beating the bull. Hmm? And the bull's already on one leg, and so he interferes. And so this is a way of speaking about what they call the Kali. Kali Yuga. Kali means quarrel. So the book has this emphasis on, for sense of urgency, that there's a time right now, it's inauspicious. Hmm? And, and, and because it's inauspicious, and people quarrel over any over anything. Some were sound bites, and you said, and there it is. You know, he said this. And take it out of context, and and dethro- de- derail his campaign or something. This kind of thing. So uh, it talks about. If you listen to it, it's very interesting. It kind of really, you think, yeah, but these are the times we live in. It's very hypocritical, and the leaders impersonating a king. It means the leaders in this age will be. People that you can't rely upon, hmm? uh, they're, they're, they're not uh, honest and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's kind of, a, as I say, if you read it, it does kind of resonate with the times in which we live. And uh, so this is the Kali. Kali was the impersonator of the king. He stops him and, 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 and the book is about the, the Dharma for Kali Yuga that's, that's so streamlined. I said it's very easy to chant Krishna's name, but very powerful given the short amount of time and the Kali offers and the inauspicious nature of the quality of the time and so forth. A very efficacious means for deliverance and, and, and more. Hmm? And so we take up this chanting. This is one of the ways in which the Bhagavatam gets us to, to have a sense of urgency about the chanting. And um, we do that also by avoiding the haunts of Kali, which is the point I wanted to conclude on. So I wanted to make a kind of a basic uh, presentation here. <laughs> and as I said the other day, the basics are not to be skipped over. So... The haunts of Kali. In other words, so Kali, as soon as he saw the real king, and he, he know, I'm, I'm, I'm owned here now. So he said, forgive me, or I take shelter to touch your feet. So the king, the real king said, well, what can I do? He, he's a bad guy, but he's, that's the way he is. That's his nature, but he's, he's done Sharanagati. He's, he's surrendered himself to me, so I can't kill him. Hmm? The implication is he has his time. His time has come. We try to moderate it in some way, uh, but we can't do away with it altogether. Hmm? Uh, so the, 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 the Kali says, you've got to give me some place in your kingdom to live. So the, the king says, well, all right, I'll give you a place. You can live wherever there is. Um, what does he say? Dyutam panam striya suna. Dyutam panam striya suna. Wherever there is... Uh, Gambling, or the implication is 
people trying to beat the system rather than have an honest day's work that will purify your heart in an ordinary sense hmm? um, and leads to, you know, like people play the market and, you know, leads to inside trading and all that. It, it, it lends itself to uh, such um, dishonesty. No gambling, he said. Wherever there's gambling, you can stay. And he said, wherever there is, uh, dutam means like drinking, means intoxication to extend the idea. Uh, and where there is street means, uh, well, literally kind of means in context, womanizing or manizing, I guess you could say, that uh, that, that should be controlled. Everybody agrees with that, right? Hmm? That the sexual urge should be, everybody agrees universally. The sexual urge should be controlled. We just draw the line in different places. Hmm? Everybody thinks, yes, to be a respectable person, proper person, you have to draw the line somewhere. Hmm? So the Bhagavad recommends a place to draw the line. Hmm? That relationships uh, for intimacy and so forth should be celebrated, hmm? and. Um, and they should be entered into uh, full knowing that there's going to be some real love in it too because there's going to be sacrificing, as I said earlier, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and growing from that. So um, it's, not, it's, it's not for playboys. This, uh, he said that, that, that's a place for Kali. Hmm. So intoxication and gambling, womanizing, manizing, and... Shuna means, one of the means is slaughterhouse, so, where animals are abused, and the implication of that has come to be in our tradition of a vegetarian diet, so I think you've prepared a vegetarian feast for everybody. Um, and, um, and so the Kali said, well, that's great, but there's no place like that in your kingdom, so you've got to give me something else. So the king said, okay, I'll give you one other place. Wherever there's the hoarding of riches, of wealth, wherever there's the hoarding of wealth, hmm? if people hoard their wealth, then these things will grow, is the implication. Hmm? So we should take what we need to support our lives, and our life energy should be used for the pursuit of uh, all that is really really meaningful, self-realization, God-realization. And we'll find it doesn't cost a lot to pursue self-realization. Hmm. So if we have a means of livelihood that affords us some, um, what do they call that? Um, disposable income. You can dispose it for the very purpose that you should be living and sharing of that with others by opening the temples and printing the books and, and, and incidentally, now that I think about it, we have an opportunity. There is it. I just thought about that. We are just in our community at, in Saragrahi, we are just uh, trying to raise $2,000 to pay the architect the initial fee for drawing up the interim temple and the monastic quarter so that we can move the deities and monks, uh, monastics, onto to the property. So we should pass the hat around, and if you can help today, that would be much appreciated. But 
to give your wealth hmm, beyond what you need. And everybody's needs are different, and their psychology is different. So you know, we don't go around and say, "Hey, you know, I'm giving more than you." And we should be honest, and we should. As Mother Teresa said, "You're not giving if it doesn't pinch. You don't feel it." So, hmm. so give and grow is the idea. And so, without that, the message was that well. Kali said, yeah, there's places where there's people hoarding gold, so I'll go there, and all the other things came. So to avoid the kind of counteract the inauspiciousness of the age, then we embraced the idea of avoiding these four things. So you have to do that. This is the basics, and you, you, if you don't do that, then you like, uh, it's harder to make progress. You're kind of like, uh, go up, and then go down and and keep chanting anyway. But but you have to understand, unless these things start to come into place, nothing else much is going to come into place. You might get some enthusiasm. There's more and get some experience, but it won't be enduring. Hmm? So you have to avoid these kind of things. You have to avoid the world of intoxication, womanizing, and all the, these these things. This is important. Hmm? Important and be very helpful to you. Hmm? My groomers emphasize this. It's right from from Bhagavatam. They're not really angas of bhakti, but they are uh, advocated uh, to avoid the kali. You take the remedy for the kali yuga, the chanting, and uh, you know avoid his haunts, if you will. And this way, you can enter into the book of the Bhagavatam and find all the secrets we didn't get to <laughs> today in our brief overview. So, thank you very much. Hare Krishna.